right, if you want to join me back in the book of Psalms this evening as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together, we pick up in Psalm 108 this evening. Psalm 108, it has been a while since two Psalms that this Psalm is actually a collection of Psalm 57 as well as Psalm 60, but you may notice just by recollection from the Spirit of the Lord that this Psalm is basically a repetition of those two Psalms combined. We'll notice in verses 1 through 6, you basically have a reference of the exact same statements that we find in Psalm 57, a portion of Psalm 57, not the entirety. And then in verses 7 down through the remainder of the psalm, we have a repetition of statements and verses that come to us back from Psalm 60. So basically what seems to happen, it tells us here that this is a a psalm of David. It seems that as the Spirit of the Lord directed David to compose this particular song or psalm, that David pulled truths and thoughts from two psalms and put them together and felt that they had fresh insight and perspective in regards to things that would be pertinent for the Lord's people to hear. And again, we notice the reality here of this concept biblically of repetition. Uh, and, And again, understand, God is never repeating himself in the word of God because somehow the divine... Uh, wisdom of God has lacked for something new to say or something better to say. Certainly for all of eternity, we'll continue to learn continuously from the depths of the wisdom, of the riches of the knowledge of God. So therefore, though the word of God is incredibly large in what's been given to us in this 66 books, when we clearly find of the spirit of the Lord, God being repetitious, there's a reason for God being repetitious. Uh, And God is a master teacher. And so apparently there are times when God feels like the best thing for sake of thoroughness or reminder or to keep us on track with certain things is that we would actually hear certain things more than once and not just said in a different way, but specifically just saying the exact same things. And again, here we find, as I said, a composition of Psalm 57 and Psalm 60 portions of both put together and they give to us Psalm 108. And again, it's just, I think, a good reminder as well, too, that repetition, when we find it in the Word of God, whether it's the exact same statements, and there's not a ton of that, but we do see it happening periodically in the Scripture, or whether it's just a restatement of certain truths, it's a reminder to us that it's amazing how the very truths of the Word of God, because this is a Spirit-inspired book, it has the breath of God, breathed into it the life of God, that the same truths that we read back in Psalm 57, that we read in Psalm 60, it's amazing how they can have fresh application to our hearts with where we're at now in March of 2022, as compared to where we were perhaps at a place in uh, 2021 or at 2018. And it's amazing how, as we read through the word of God, because it is alive and powerful, how fresh application comes to our hearts Certain statements speak to us in ways that become way more applicable because of maybe where we're at or what we're going through. So Psalm 108, notice it begins. The psalmist David declares, oh God, he says, my heart is steadfast. And the idea of steadfast there means to be established. So he's saying, God, my heart is fixed. It's established. My heart is unwavering. 
Uh, and, and that's what we want. We want to have a heart that is unwavering towards the Lord. The time where we see God's people on occasion getting off track, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, many times is because that very thing was not there. They were divided in their hearts. They had divided loyalties. Uh, and the best thing for us to do as a worshiper of God is to have our heart steadfast, that our heart would be established, committed that we'd have an unwavering heart towards the Lord. And the psalmist says, in light of this, David declares, notice, I will sing, he says. So again, this was a conscious choice. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. So again, there's that, that conscious decision. Lord, my heart is steadfast. I'm committed to you. I want to be devoted to you. So therefore, I will sing. Uh, whether I feel like singing, whether I like the way that I sing, whether there's no musicians for Wednesday night church, I'll still sing. Whether I have to be the one that people go, boy, he sounds really bad when he leads a song, I will sing. But we choose to sing because we're not singing for ourselves. We're singing as a sacrifice of praise, right? The Bible says the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto his name. And in the same way, it was a conscious choice to bring an animal to the altar and to make an offering to the Lord as an act of worship. The Bible says that that's one of the ways we now give a sacrifice unto the Lord. It's a sacrifice of praise. That whether it's a sacrifice and it costs us something or what it involves, that we make that sacrifice of praise by singing and giving him that praise with my glory. And here he speaks in verse 2 of one of the ways that he would do that. David says, awake lute and harp and david often played stringed instruments and he liked the accompaniment uh, of being able to use melody through playing the stringed instruments to put these words to musical song and melody melody and he says verse two i will awaken the dawn so you can tell david's praise began as the morning started so it's almost as if david says not that I'll begin to praise at dawn, but notice he says, I'll awaken the dawn. It's almost as if David's saying, I'm going to get out my little lute and harp, and I'm going to start playing and singing the Lord, and I'm going to wake the dawn up. <laughs> it's almost as if you can tell David understood the value of early seeking the Lord and just beginning the day by just praising the Lord, just you know, ro rolling out of bed and the first thing, just being thankful to the Lord. Lord, you woke me up again. Lord, somehow, I don't know how it works. Sleep has always, to me, been such a bizarre, mysterious thing. If you think about it, you just close your eyes and you have no idea what happens for four, five, six, eight. Hopefully, you're not going beyond that. 10, 12 hours. But you're, you're in this state where basically you're in complete, in essence, paralysis. And you're completely, you want to talk about trusting God to keep your heart beating, to keep your lungs breathing, to keep your organs functioning, to who knows what's going on in your house while you're sleeping. And, and again, God's just completely taking care of us. And then we just wake up this start of a brand new day. And we realize that you know every day is truly just another gift of God's grace. It's another opportunity. As the Bible says, his mercies are new morning by morning. And that mercy begins with just that God had mercy upon us to give us another day to give us another day, an opportunity. He's going to say in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord's made. And so we should, what, rejoice and be glad in it. That every day we get another opportunity. It's, it truly does become a, a day the Lord has made. And so therefore we should have a rejoicing heart, having a grateful attitude. It's a wonderful way to begin the day to just start thanking and praising the Lord to someday, to awaken the dawn 
with worship unto the Lord. And verse 3, he interestingly gives us another insight, I think, that is important regarding worship, particularly for those who do lead at times even worship, those who are you know, gifted musically in that capacity. He says, I will praise you, O Lord, notice, among the peoples, and I will sing praise to you among the nations. So notice, notice who praise is directed to. He says in verse 3, I will praise you. I will sing praise to you. So whether it's you and I as the individual worshipers doing what we did this evening a few moments ago, or whether it is a person leading us in the musical aspect of worship in a gathering time, the important thing is notice the one that we are praising is the Lord. I will praise you. I will sing to you, but yet we do that among the people. So we see two things, that that worship and praise is directed vertical to the Lord, but it is to be partaken of and participated among the horizontal gathering of the people of God, that we are to come together collectively, that there's something about corporate worship. And so he says, I will praise you, but I will do it among the peoples. I think that's very important. You know, tragically, one of the things that greatly concerned myself and I think concerning many people is getting all the way here we are, you know, some two years or so kind of plus the, you know, past this whole pandemic episode is many, many people have become very, very comfortable praising the Lord among their living room furniture. And I don't know if that's healthy for people long term. I don't believe it's a proper biblical pattern for what God intends for the welfare of of the sheep and their growth and their health and their benefit. And the Bible encourages us to be among one another, to be coming together collectively, that the spirit of the Lord's ministry is happening among us. There is something very beautiful, it's very powerful about not only just singing to the Lord, but singing to the Lord and hearing the voices of other people singing around you. There's something about that that as it resonates in the sound of that, if you've ever been in a large gathering of Christians, maybe where lots of voices are being lifted to the Lord, and you almost kind of just close your eyes and be quiet for a moment, and you almost have this sense of of the reality of, man, is this kind of like what heaven's going to be like? You know, 10,000 upon 10,000 voices, just the power of all those voices among one another being lifted up to the Lord. So again, there's this importance. Praise is given to the Lord. That's who we're singing to. But praise is being done among the peoples as we collectively do such as we're with one another. Verse four, he says his reason for praising the Lord for your mercy is great above the heavens and your truth reaches to the clouds. So Lord, your mercy, the extent of it, he says, it, it's, it's so incredible. It reaches far above the heavens. Again, just trying to picture this idea of how vast and how deep the mercy of God is. And, and we're, we're very thankful for that because sometimes when we get ourselves into some real deep mistakes or some big messes and we think, man, I have got myself into quite a, quite a hole here, and I've kind of maybe created a lot of separation between me and God relationally. The Bible just draws this picture of his mercy is, is much higher than that. It goes much deeper than that. And he shows this vast expanse of how incredibly merciful God is. And he says, Lord, and your truth, same way, your truth, it, it reaches to the, to the skies or to the clouds. Lord, your truth is incredibly wonderful. 
He says, therefore, verse five, be exalted, O God. And this is what his heart was, that God would be exalted above the heavens and your glory above all the earth. Lord, that's my desire. He says, Lord, I just want to see you exalted. I want to see you glorified. That's the chief ambition of my life. It's why I sing to you. It's why I live for you, that you would be exalted, that you would be glorified through my life. He says, verse six, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. And I'll tell you, that is one of the ways I think so many times God is exalted and God is glorified in the ways that he works incredible deliverance and salvation for his people. If there is indeed a way that God is incredibly honored and glorified and exalted is when we see when God intervenes for his beloved and, and he delivers in some way, he gets us out of something or he rescues us or he saves us with his right hand and his strong right hand steps into a situation and, and, and God just reveals that he hurt us and he acted and we realize, man, I saw the hand of God in that. It's incredible. I totally saw the hand of the Lord and you recognize the hand of the Lord became involved in a situation and how that gives then great testimony. We want to exalt him and give glory to him because we realize what he's done. Now, as he comes to verse seven, he makes a transition here and he begins to speak about the sovereignty of God and the help of God that he provides as he rules over all. And again, these phrases here come from portions of Psalm 60. He says, first of all, verse seven, God has spoken. I have that boxed in my Bible there. I just like those three words that God has spoken. You know, and there's something about... You know, when, when someone speaks and like, that's it. You know, just when, when someone with power, when a king has spoken, that's it. Once the king's spoken, it's declared. No one's changing it. The edict is given. And there's something very powerful about when someone who has great authority speaks. And, and I just like that he says here, God has spoken. And God has spoken in tremendous ways. He's spoken to us incredible things in the word of God, and those things are irrevocable. You know, I just read this, mor this morning in my own devotional time where Jesus said that the scriptures cannot be broken. Again, God has spoken in his word, and those scriptures cannot be altered. They cannot be broken. Psalm 119 says that God's word is established in the heavens. It's eternal. So people can try and twist the word of God and change the word of God. And they can try and burn copies of the word of God. But the reality is God's word is established in the eternal dimension. So nobody's going to change it. God doesn't accommodate generation to generation or people who have new ideas or want to alter this or why that was for that generation. But it's established. God's spoken. It's declared. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that one of the clearest ways that God's spoken in these last days, Hebrews 1 says that God has spoken through his son. That God's greatest message was the giving to us of his own son, Jesus Christ, God's way of declaring the most important thing we needed to hear was in the giving of his own son coming and doing what Jesus did for us. And so he says here, God has spoken in his holiness. And again, the idea there is the word holy speaks to be to be set apart. That, that is, God is unique. He is sanctified. He's set apart. He is pure and righteous and, and, and unlike any other. And so from that condition of holiness, God has spoken. And here you just sense the sovereignty of God in these statements here. He says, and this is the word that God has spoken. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. 
It speaks of, a, of a, an area westward in the nation of Israel. And measure out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also, God said, is the helmet for my head. So like a great warrior king here, God starts to make declarations about the land. The land that belongs to him. The Bible says, as we've seen in our study in Psalms already, that God says the whole world is mine. So the land of Israel, that particular area there geographically, that is a part of all that is God's. And God has given that land specifically to his chosen people, the Jews, and he has given to them that land. And here God speaks of dividing and separating the land. He refers to areas in the west. He refers to areas in the east. He refers to how Ephraim would be the the helmet for his head. The idea is using his people at times to go out into battle to accomplish his purposes and his works. Now, as he says these things, he then goes on to say, referring to the nation of Judah, or excuse me, to the tribe of Judah. Judah is my lawgiver. And the idea there of my lawgiver, literally we might translate that Judah is my ruler. The person who is a ruler is the one who makes up the laws, is the one who gives the laws or distributes the laws. So he says, Judah is my lawgiver or my ruler. And very interesting because who ultimately came from the tribe of Judah? Jesus did, right? The ultimate ruler And lawgiver came through the tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah. And then he speaks in verse 9 of some of the continual enemies of the nation of Israel that at times hassled them and attacked them and tried to come against them to hinder what God's purposes were for them. He refers to Moab and Edom and Philistia. Moab, remember, was one of the, the offspring of a sinful action that took place of God's people and the nation of Moab was birthed out of them and then they became a chronic problem for them like a nagging aspect of the flesh just always hassling them and causing them problems and God says here of Moab he says to them ruling over them in his sovereignty Moab is my wash pot and that's not a encouraging thing that is they're the wash basin I use to to get rid of filth over Edom God says this, again, Edom was a nation that was many times in the Old Testament referred to because of their great pride and their arrogancy. And God says, Edom, who's so arrogant and rebellious in their pride, God says, I will cast my shoe. The idea is God says, I put them under my foot uh, and I'm able to conquer them. That's the picture of like a conquering king putting his foot up on his enemy's neck. Over Edom, God says, I will cast my shoe. And over Philistia, God says, I will triumph. So God able to conquer, didn't matter who the enemy was, whether Moab or Edom or Philistia, God says, no matter who they are, God says, no matter how proud they are, God says, I can humble them. There's not a nation that God cannot humble. The Bible tells us that God exalts nations and he puts down nations. The Bible says that God exalts kings and he can bring down kings. And and even outside of those who serve him and honor and acknowledge him, God ultimately sovereignly rules over all the nations. And here God speaks of himself in this strength of his ability to control all that's happening, of even how he humbles those who were enemies to the people of God, humbling Moab and Edom and Philistia. Now, if you notice back up in verse 7, I found it interesting. Notice he says God has spoken in his holiness. The first thing that's mentioned and again, this is, a, a, this is the voice of the Lord we're hearing here. God says, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem. 
again, and this is the, the God speaking in the first person. Interesting, he says here, God says, I will rejoice. Now, when does God rejoice? I mean, what an interesting thing. Often he tells us to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. But when does God rejoice and what does God rejoice over? Well, if you want to hold your finger here and turn with me over to, to Zephaniah chapter 3. And if you don't want to try and navigate that because it's right in the middle of all the minor prophets in your Old Testament, you're welcome to just listen and I'll, I'll read to you. Zephaniah is, if you hit Haggai, turn left. If you, you know, hit books like Habakkuk and so forth, turn right. But Zephaniah chapter 3, or you have a table of contents. That's why they put that in there right at the beginning of your Bible. Zephaniah chapter 3, this is what we read, this very beautiful little statement at the end of Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah 3, verse uh, 17, as God is speaking to the people of Israel, to his, to his congregation, to his own people. He says this in verse 16, In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion, let not your hands be weak. And then look at this statement in regards to what we just read in the psalm. God says, I will rejoice. Verse 17, The Lord your God in your midst among you, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you. Check this out with what? Singing. Imagine that. God even likes to sing. And here he says that God is the one at times who rejoices over his own people with gladness. Now, that's almost a foreign thought in my mind to try and process. Many times I would imagine, you know, the struggle of Lord, somehow you're glad and you rejoice over me. I'm thinking more like you got a casualty on your hands. You know, you need three more insurance agents ever since I became one of your children because you got a whole lot more, you know, headache involved. And I probably already stressed out at least three different angels who I put into retirement. And, and we're thinking like, God would be glad over us, but look what the word of God says. He rejoices over you with gladness. God rejoices and he is glad that you, you, that you've become a part of his family. And it makes God glad to the degree where he actually celebrates and rejoices over the fact that you're one of his own. Knowing everything about you, everything that you've done, everything you're still doing, the struggles you still have, that God actually rejoices over you. You know, didn't Jesus say that, that the angels in heaven and all of heaven rejoice over what just one person who gets saved? And what an amazing concept to picture almighty God rejoicing over us with gladness quieting our hearts with his love because that should just bring kind of a settling quiet to our hearts when we realize the extent of God's great love and that he rejoices over us with singing. Somehow God at times, maybe, I don't know, in the midst of the eternal dimension, he just leads up a worship song and, and begins to rejoice and somehow the tone of that song is him rejoicing over all of his sons and daughters 
and the saints there in heaven and the reality of those who've been washed in the blood of the lamb and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God just begins to somehow rejoice in song over the reality of all those who have already been taken home to heaven and are enjoying that reward and those who are going to be brought home. And it just makes him start rejoice and start singing. I mean, what an incredible thing to to picture our God in that role. The Bible describes him in that way, as he says here, back with me, if you'll turn to Psalm 108, I will rejoice. And we get to see a little bit there specifically of what the word of God says he actually does rejoice over. And again, if I can make a just a, a little side connection to that, the best commentary on the Bible is always what? The Bible, Right. I will rejoice. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's see what the scripture says, what that means. And so many times when we're trying to understand scripture, typically the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, is to see what the word of God says in light of the word of God to help us increase in our understanding to some degree, even times when we find things that maybe we're perhaps trying to wrestle through what exactly could that be referring to. Certainly, Zephaniah 3 is one indication of what could be described there by the Spirit in verse 7. Verse 10, he then says, And who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? Now, the picture here seems to be kind of like a description of some military conflict. That Again, both of those Psalms, Psalm 57 and 60, did have sort of a military uh, tone to them when David was writing them. When he talks about being brought into the strong city and being led into Edom, we do know that it is in the area uh, where Edom was, this strong city, this rock city that we know is rock city of Petra. This incredibly, incredibly, you know, fascinating, uh, you know, city built out of solid rock with, you know, a, a, a tunnel basically leading into it at times no more than about two horses wide and walls of massive rock running all the way up about a thousand feet, which was this incredible fortress in this rock city Petra that people were able to flee to. It's amazing that this thing was actually built. And many believe that this is where the Jews and the people of Israel will flee to find refuge during the time when the tribulation is unfolding and the Antichrist is unleashing his wrath as he turns against the Jewish people. And so here, very interesting, who will lead me to that strong city to lead me into Edom? Is it not you, he says, verse 11, O God? And then he speaks of perhaps what was going on, who had, you know, the reason for their defeat. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? So David recognized that when they suffered defeat as the people of God, it had nothing to do with their resources, had nothing to do with their military strategy, had nothing to do with the skill of their warriors or, or even the odds, right? Because we read in the Old Testament, there are times when Israel was greatly outnumbered and they would have incredible victory and success. There were other times when it looked like they should just crush their enemies and they would be kind of self-confident and they would just, we don't need the whole army. And they would just send a few people and they would be incredibly defeated. And the bottom line was always, it always boiled down to their relationship with God, their dependency upon God. Whether they as the nation of Israel were living in right relationship and fellowship with God, that always determines success and prosperity on the battlefield or being vulnerable and suffering defeat and kind of suffering loss. And he says here, is it not you, O God, who seems to have cast us off and you didn't go out with our armies? And when God did not go out with their armies, they were defeated. 
And again, the Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I think the opposite of it is true as well. Cursed is the nation who wants nothing more to do with the Lord. We make ourselves weakened. We make ourselves vulnerable. And I think certainly even as our own country, and we can think that we are an incredible superpower, but even as God at times would let foreign nations come in and conquer his own people, Israel, and he would make them vulnerable to even pagan nations that didn't even worship and serve God. And he would let them be defeated and overcome as an act of discipline. I don't think we should so arrogantly always think that just because we have this great military power and super might and we are who we are with our American military, that somehow nobody could conquer us or defeat us or that our back can't be broken. Because that really boils down to whether or not God goes out with us and with our armies. And whether or not we honor God and as our nation, if we want to look to God, God can very easily just pull back his hand, pull back his favor and presence and let us be conquered very, very easily. In fact, it's very eerily silent in the Bible, if you study it, to realize that there seems to be a tremendous silence regarding the presence or strength of the United States of America in the last days. God very specifically mentions other nations in detail. It's not as if somehow this wonderful thing, and listen, uh, this is a wonderful American experiment. What we have become as a nation is incredible, and God's done an incredible thing through our nation. So it's not like somehow when the word of God was being composed, somehow for God forgot the United States of America was going to be established, and all this was going to happen. God knew all that. God's aware of all this, but apparently God said something is going to transpire to where in the last days America is going to be either already defeated and conquered or are we going to be so weak and so passive that we are not even going to be a participant or a player in regards to what happens when last day scenarios and events begin to unfold as the scripture describes prophetically. So again, where is a nation's strength that's in connection to their relationship with God? He concludes the Psalm saying, verse 13, through God, notice, through God, we will do valiantly. That's how. Through God we do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. So my apologies, I skipped over verse 12, but I think it perhaps fits better in this sense of what a great way to conclude with the thought of this, the psalmist prays, give us help from trouble. And I've always loved this verse, and I'm glad it's in the Bible twice. For the help of man <laughs> is useless. You know, it doesn't take long when you begin to journey in life to realize that verse 12 is a very fitting spiritual principle. God, give us help from trouble. Lord, we need your help. I need your help in my personal life. We need your help in our family. We need your help in our church. Lord, we need your help in our society and our nation. Lord, please give us help from trouble. And then he says, here's why. For the help of man is useless. And so many times we find this reality of the disappointment of depending upon other people, depending upon other human beings. You know, so many times we have proved, sadly, though we maybe may have wanted to help, we've proved to be very useless in our ability to be able to help someone, even in good intention, because what we are able to do is just is just not sufficient. And, and we don't become the necessary help someone needs. And there have been many times in all of our lives in this room where we have discovered, God, if you don't help me, I'm in trouble because the help of people, Lord, 
it, it, it's proven to be pretty useless. People tend to be fickle. They tend to be unreliable, unfaithful. They say they're going to do this. They don't follow through. They make commitments. They don't carry them out. You, know, you go to them looking for solutions, and they don't have solutions. And so this is just such an important spiritual concept to understand that we should not put our confidence in people. We should not put our reliance upon other people because God himself says, look, understand the help of man is useless. Ask me for help. Ask me for help. And it's so important that we understand that because when we understand that, then the disappointment's not such a big deal. And then we don't have to get so frustrated when we find out the help of people is useless. <laughs> we don't have to be so angry or upset or disappointed because we can realize that God said, I told you that. I told you that. Why did you depend upon the help of a person? Why didn't you ask me to help in that situation? Why didn't you look to me to help in that situation instead of looking to the help of a person? So great reminder to help us in our own lives. Now, Psalm 109 we're going to move through it a little more quickly, and you'll see why. It's a, an imprecatory psalm. And again, these imprecatory psalms are basically psalms where the writer is expressing their, their frustration and basically calling God to deal severely with their enemies. And of course, we know that David was a very passionate man. David was a man of war. And so many times we find David being the one expressing his passions quite poetically <laughs> And many believe this is probably one of the most, if not the most severe of the imprecatory Psalms where David, I mean, he just really, really lets things really loose here in regards to pouring out his frustration towards those who have hurt him and betrayed him in his life. And he just kind of says, Lord, just deal with them. Get them, Lord. Don't let me get a hold of them. You better get them before I do. And he just kind of makes us feel a little more normal because you've said some of these things. We just wouldn't tell anybody probably. Psalm 109, verse 1, he says, Do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They've spoken against me with a lying tongue. So David calls them wicked, deceitful, and he says, Lord, they're wicked and deceitful mouths. They've opened against me. They're speaking things that are not true whether those were criticisms or just false statements being made to try and harm David or ruin his character. He says, Lord, they're, they're, they're saying things that are not accurate with a lying tongue. They're wickedly coming against me, attacking me with their words. Verse three, they've also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Verse four, he says, in return for my love, now, here's where the pain comes. These, David says, I, these aren't people that I just was already lying about myself. These weren't people I was mean to or I was hateful towards. David says these were people that he was showing love towards. Maybe it was his own family. I don't know. But these were people who he was trying to be kind to, to be loving towards. And in return, he got painful betrayal. I know that's probably never happened to anyone in this room. People who you've tried to love and be gracious and kind to, maybe family or people you've done good things to, and in return for the good and the love, you got poisonous serpent bites in return or painful affliction or some bitter betrayal, some wounding that happened to you. Look what he says. In return for my love, 
They are my accusers. Again, those who David were loving became those who were heaping the greatest accusations, criticizing him, saying harsh and painful things. But I give myself to prayer. Thus, they've rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David says, I sought to love these people, to be good to these people. And in return for that, they've rewarded me with evil and hatred and accusation. Interesting, as he says there, verse four, uh, my accuser, that's the same word if we took it out to the English where we would get our word Satan. And, And that's exactly ultimately what the word Satan means when you reduce the word Satan down. It literally means an accuser. That's part of the title of one of the titles of the devil or Satan is that he is a tremendous accuser. And so we never in some ways become more like Satan than we are heaping nasty accusations against people, saying things with our mouths that are accusatory and hurtful towards people. He says, in return for my love, they become my accusers. They've rewarded me evil for good. But notice what David says he does. He says, but I give myself, verse four, to prayer. David says, they're accusing me, they're they're backbiting, they're hurting me with painful things. But he says, I found the best thing to do was not to say things back or to retaliate with my words or defend them. I found the best thing to do, God, was just to give myself over in prayer to you and to just talk to God and to just vent to God. You know, that is probably one of the safest places if you're going to vent, vent to God. Because sometimes, and I'm not saying there's not value in us venting to one another, but a lot of times when we vent to others, our venting very quickly becomes accusation and criticism and complaining. And and then we just go down the same slippery slope in our emotions and our hurt and our frustration. But, you know, God's a safe place. You can vent to God. You can pray and and just tell God. And this is what we find David doing. And and he's very brutally honest with God. We're going to see here in the way that he's praying. Now, when you read verses four and five, I hope you can almost sense there. Again, remember, the Bible tells us Jesus says all things in the law and the prophets and the Psalms are spoken concerning me. And here's one place in the Psalms, certainly, that we see a foreshadowing in a picture of Jesus. Do verse four and five not describe what happened to Jesus better than anyone? Think of Jesus saying this in return for my love. They are my accusers. You're not the son of God. You have a demon. You're a glutton. You hang out with prostitutes and and, and all the accusations that were made against Jesus in return for what? His love. In return for my love, they've become my accusers. But I've given myself to prayer. What did Jesus even say as he was dealing with the pain of the accusations from people against him when he even hung on the cross? What did he do? He gave himself to prayer. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do, right? That's what Jesus said. He prayed for his own accusers and enemies. They've rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Boy, what a fitting description of what our own Lord Jesus went through when on the earth. Verse six, David then just starts to really let loose here now. He says, set a wicked man over him. In other words, Lord, they've been wicked to me. Put somebody wicked over them and let an accuser stand at his right hand. And when he's judged, He says, let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. The idea is completely rejected that you wouldn't even listen to him, God. So he says here, Lord, I pray that when he's judged, when he's measured and evaluated, Lord, let his guilt be known. Lord, flush out his guilt. The Bible says that our sin will find us out. David and his frustration, he says, Lord, 
I pray that you would just, when, when, you, when you allow him to be judged and measured, Lord, don't let his guilt be unseen. Expose his guilt, Lord. Bring forth to light the wrong things that are being done. He then says, verse 8, and let his days be few. The idea is cut off his days, diminish his opportunity. Lord, don't give him hardly any more days doing what he's doing as he's doing what's wrong. Lord, don't prolong his days. What he's done is wrong. So he says, cut short his days in that role and what he's doing. Let his days be few and notice and let another take his office or position. Lord, dethrone him. Put somebody else in that place. Put somebody else into that role or that position, he says. Now, you might want to write in your Bible here, Acts chapter 1, verse 20, because Peter quotes this very statement, let his days be few and let another take his office in Acts chapter 1 in relation to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And Peter quotes that in the book of Acts saying, because of what G Judas had done betraying Jesus, and in a sense, forfeiting his role and opportunity to be one of the apostles and a servant of the Lord in ministry, Peter said, okay, therefore, Lord has, has removed him. So he says, let another take his office. And that was when Peter, remember, then kind of proposed that they should raise up someone else. And Peter quotes this very verse as the basis of his reasoning. Now, now let me just say in connection to that, to me, that's an incredible working knowledge of the word of God. Right? I mean, Peter just, as he's communicating, but again, notice, as he's communicating, he's basing his even communication, his counsel, his ideas, using scriptural basis, but Peter just randomly quotes this verse from the Old Testament. Now, either he had a tremendous working knowledge of the Word of God, which I believe that was true, as well as the fact that he was just simply at times being led of the Spirit of God in conjunction with the Word of God, and, and amazing that he quotes this very statement in Acts chapter 1 to say that they should replace Judas Iscariot because of his wickedness and betrayal, and he uses this verse as kind of the basis. Lord, let another take his office. Give it to someone else, please. He says, verse 9, let his children be fatherless, his wife a widow, one of the most horrible and painful things that could happen to anyone. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg, that is like in poverty, begging around for survival, seeking their bread from desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Lord, throw him into bankruptcy. I mean, David doesn't mince words, does he? <laughs> Bring the creditor down on him, Lord, and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any favor to his fatherless children. Let his posterity or his success and fruitfulness be cut off. And in the generation that follows, let their name be blotted out. Now notice, David's not taking these actions. He's saying, let this happen, let this happen, let this happen. Ultimately, what David realizes, vengeance isn't mine to take, it's God's. God, if you're looking for suggestions, just let this happen. Let him fall into bankruptcy and let this happen, let this happen. I mean, thankfully, God doesn't take suggestions and he does what's right and he's sovereign. Again, remember, David didn't take action and revenge even when he could have against Saul. Remember, David's character was he said, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. And though David could have very easily expedited the process and removed Saul, who was already being dethroned by God anyway, David said, I'm not going to do that. David's mentality was, I'm not going to play God in this situation. That's not my role. 
and David's mentality was, God, you hired him, you gave him that position, so God, you clearly need and plan to fire him, but it needs to be you that does it. So then it will be evident that it was you that did it and nobody else. And then it will be completely clear to everyone that was a sovereign act of God. God dethroned Saul and removed him. So David here just kind of praying this out, just getting his frustrations out. Look what he says, verse 14. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. Lord, if need be, if you can't get him, bring up the sins of his ancestors. David's mad. Let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and the needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. So notice how cruel this person was. And again, this, I think, kind of gives some of the indication here of why David really is so intense and why he is just so upset in regards to not just what happened to him, but notice what he says, verse 16, whoever this person was that was doing these things, they were incredibly cruel in the way they were treating people. And this bothered David because David had a, a shepherd's heart and a love for people. He says he didn't remember to show mercy, but he persecuted the poor and the needy. That is those who were already down and out. He treated them like they were worthless. And, and he just kind of dismissed them and, and, and made things harder for them. And he says, verse 16, he even slayed the broken in heart. And the Bible tells us the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and heals the brokenhearted. This person, because their heart was so amiss, they didn't even care that somebody's heart was broken. They were even punishing and hurting people who were broken at heart, treating them in ways where they were actually slaying, he says, hurting worse those who were already broken in their heart and spirit. Verse 17, as he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with a garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and a belt which he girds himself continually. Let this be the Lord's reward, David says, to my accusers and those who speak evil against my person. So David basically is saying, Lord, all I'm asking is let, let, him, let him reap what he sowed. Let him reap what he sowed. Lord, that, that's all I'm at. He, he delighted in cursing people and hurting people and harming people. So, Lord, just let, let him reap it. And he didn't want to bless people. He didn't want to be kind to people and take care of people. So, Lord, I pray that you would revoke blessing from him. Pull back kindness from him. Let him see what it's like to suffer himself. Awaken and get his attention. And, Lord, bring vengeance in a just way to this situation. Again, David wanted this wrongdoing to stop because of the pain it caused him and certainly many others that were being hurt as well. Verse 21, but you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake, because your mercy is good. He says, please, Lord, deliver me. Get me out from under this. For I am poor and needy. The idea is, Lord, I, I don't have what it takes to resolve this situation. To be poor and needy means to lack resources. And he says, Lord, I don't have the resources to fix this situation. And he says, verse 22, my heart is wounded within me. I am gone, he says, like a shadow when it lengthens. I'm shaken like a locust. Lord, I feel like just a weak, just a weak, frail bug, like a, like a, like a, a, a worthless shadow that's passing away. My knees are weak 
through fasting. I feel, Lord, weak and, and powerless. My flesh is feeble from lack of fatness, lack of food or sustenance. I've also become a reproach to them. When they look at me, they shake their heads. Now, interesting, again, verse 25, very prophetic of Jesus. In the same way, when they looked at him, he had become a reproach and they shook their heads in mockery towards Jesus. But you can tell, again, where does all the root of this come from? It's coming from the fact that David is at a place in his life, though he loves the Lord, that he has been dealing with certain things that have deeply wounded him as a man and as a person. I mean, in his own admission in verse 22, he says, Lord, I feel poor and needy and my heart is wounded within me. David had a wounded heart. You know, you may be here this evening and to some degree you have a wounded heart because of maybe something very painful that another human being has done to you or maybe multiple human beings have done to you. And it is amazing the degree of severity of hurt and pain that we can bring into one another's lives as people. The way that we can severely wound one another. And I'll tell you, I think sometimes heart wounds are much harder to heal than physical wounds of the flesh. And wounds that are emotional and mental and psychological and even spiritual. I mean, wounds that happen deep in a person's inner being because of traumatic things that happen or wrongdoing that's done or sinful activity or ways people have spoken in mean, cruel ways or just somebody that's caused a bitter betrayal in a relationship or done things. I mean, it can tremendously leave a person very wounded. And David, I mean, we appreciate in some ways, though his prayer certainly isn't a recommended prayer, but we appreciate the fact that David is venting before God and he's a wounded, hurting man and he's just, just expressing himself, Lord, I am mad. I'm really mad. But, you know, there's something about that that no doubt was therapeutic and in some ways helpful for david to process this to just give it over to god and in some ways think about it aren't we glad that in verse four david said in the midst of this i'm giving myself to prayer could you imagine if david was just saying that to other people man i just hope i just i mean they would have been like whoa david are you even saved bro i mean whoa but but you know it's a safe place to just express himself and honestly that's the the best one to heal our broken heart and to help us when we're hurting as well and i think david here makes us feel very normal and at the same time shows us a great way to process our own hurt verse 26 look how he concludes the psalm help me o lord my god save me according to your mercy that they may know that this is your hand that you lord have done it let them curse, he says, but you bless. In other words, Lord, let, they can curse if they want. Lord, turn their curse, David's saying, into a blessing. And, you know, the Bible does tell us God can do that, that God can take the curse and turn it into a blessing. Remember, that's what happened with Balaam and Balak against the people of Israel. Every time they would try and curse God's people, God would turn the curse into a blessing. And, and God could do that and be encouraged by that. Let them curse, you bless. And when they arise, let them be ashamed, he says, but let your servant rejoice and let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as a mantle. I love how David, as he's praying through this, can you tell his ultimate heart's desire always is that God would be honored in everything. He always wanted the honor of God to be the main thing that rised up to the surface because even as he's asking these things, 
You see what he says in verse 27? I have it circled because I think it is a key to all of it. David says, Lord, do these things and however you're going to do it. But he says, dealing with them, dethroning my enemy, bringing justice to pass. But he says, do it in a way that they may know that this is your hand, that you've done it. Lord, work in such a way that it is absolutely unmistakable that it was your hand that brought that to pass. That you were the one that has done it. David wanted above all else for people to say, you know what? God did that. That's the will of the Lord. And so, so David said, I don't want it to look like I've done it or anybody else has done it. Lord, work in such a way by your sovereign power and wisdom and your timing and purpose that everybody may know in the end that this was the hand of the Lord. That, Lord, you were the one that has done it. You were the one that did what was necessary, perhaps removing them from office or dealing with them in severe discipline. But, Lord, do it in a way that all will know that it was you and that your hand was the one that accomplished it. He says, verse 30, what will he do in the midst of this? I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude. So despite David's hurt, despite David's anger, you can't dismiss that from the psalm. He is hurting. His heart's wounded. He's super angry right now. But look, even when his emotions were all over the map, I mean, he is ticked. Can you say that in the pulpit? I hope so. I just said it now. I mean, he is angry. I mean, seriously angry and seriously hurt. And in the midst of that, instead of letting his emotions dictate the way that he behaves, he lets his emotions be something that are brought into proper control. He says, despite my anger and my hurt, I will praise the Lord and I will praise him among the multitude. That's called spiritual maturity because the emotions are indicators but they're not supposed to be dictators. The problem is, is that our emotions indicate things to us as they're supposed to. They indicate I'm really mad right now. I'm really hurt right now. And so emotions are proper. They indicate to us things that we need to know so that we're aware. The problem is, is then we let our emotions become dictators. And that's why the Bible says, be angry. That's an emotion, but sin not. So again, my emotion indicates I'm angry. Sometimes there's a just and a right reason to be angry, but it should never dictate, okay, I'm justified, so now I'm going to sin and behave wrongly. Instead, what we should do is when we have those strong emotions, seek the Lord, praise the Lord, worship the Lord, get our eyes back on the throne, and that helps our emotions begin to come back to a proper degree where we get back under control and we can seek to please the Lord. Because verse 31, David concludes in confidence, for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. So David's ultimate confidence in faith, Lord, ultimately you are going to do what's right. He speaks of God in the first person. God shall stand at the right hand of the poor and God shall save him from those who condemn him. He just ultimately trusts as he worships and looks to the Lord in faith that God will do what is right and God will deal with the situation, even protecting from the condemnation through his saving work. You know, I look at verse 31 and it reminds me again of Jesus in Romans chapter eight, where Jesus, uh, where Paul says of Jesus there in Romans chapter eight, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ Jesus, the Bible says, who is at the right hand of God making intercession for us.
So people can condemn and people can judge and people can say what they want. But at the end of the day, one thing matters. Are you right with Jesus? And as long as you're right with Jesus and you're under his blood and you have Jesus as your advocate in heaven, everything's okay. And you can rest on that. You can put your head down on the pillow at night and say, Lord, thank you so much that you are making intercession for me. You've got my back. Something very wonderful to know Jesus has got your back to just keep journeying through hurt, through hardships and difficult things that happen. Let's stand together. We'll pray.